Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Chris Yant. Chris is a good friend and longtime ecosystem supporter. He was formerly the CEO of Fortifiber Corporation, a business that was started by his grandfather many years ago. We really dive deep into what it means to be part of a family business, you know, from listening to his grandparents and parents talk about the business as one of his earliest memories, to taking over the helm and selling the company and kind of ending the legacy of that company. We talk about what do you do after you sell? Chris is really active on a number of different boards. So we dive into board governance. How do you pick the right board members? What does that mean for an entrepreneur to set up a board? I thought it was a really insightful conversation. Chris is just a great guy. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. So on with the podcast. Welcome, Chris, to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. It's good to see you today. Thanks for having me, Doug. I'm excited to be here. Oh, it's it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I always enjoy our lunch conversations, and it seems like a natural thing to have you on the podcast. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a subscriber. All right. Well, at least there's one. <laughs> yeah. We're small, but we're mighty. That's great. That's great. Well, why don't you tell you know the listeners a little bit about your background? Okay. Yeah. Most notably, I was CEO of Fortifiber Corporation for a bit over a decade. That was my family's business. It was a third-generation family business founded by my grandfather in 1939. We manufactured primarily waterproofing products for home construction, so a bunch of materials that go under the stucco or stone of your house and keep water out of your home. We sold those nationwide, and I sold that business in 2018 for an unsolicited offer from a supplier of ours. Wow. What an interesting experience that must have been. Yeah, yeah. It was not something we were looking to do. The business was going well and record profits for the company, best years we had had in the 80-year history of the business. But we had gotten a key supplier into a strategic corner that was not good for them. And the best way to get out of that corner was to make me not make decisions on behalf of the company. And the way to do that was to own own the company, and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Wow, what what an interesting journey. I mean, I, I'm really curious about that specific point, but I want to kind of go back a little bit. I mean, did you, I mean, you must have grown up in the business. I mean, what was your earliest memory of being in the business? My family had a ranch outside of Santa Barbara. We grew up in Los Angeles, and that's where the business was founded. And probably one weekend a month on average, we would go to our our family's ranch. It was very secluded, great place for family bonding and that type of thing. And we would go, my immediate family, my parents and my sister and I, my grandparents. At the time, it was my grandfather running the business and my father working his way up through the business. And there was another key employee, but second in command to my grandfather. And it was not related to us, but him and his wife would come with us as well on these vacations. So it's a family vacation, but the family includes this person who is not related to us, but he works in the business. And it was my grandfather's way of continuing to have business meetings even while he was relaxing on the weekend. Uh-huh. This person grew up as a, a secondary grandfather to me, and I didn't know any different. But, you know, at three years old, you'd wake up and hear my grandfather and this guy who were both old and hard of hearing, yelling at each other because they couldn't hear each other outside of our my sister and I's bedroom of, you know, oh, what do you think of paper prices? And, oh, you know, this is a, the delivery was messed up this week. We need to fire that guy and just hashing out the business. So literally as, as early as I could understand words, 
half those words had the word fortifiber in it, which was the name of the business. And so, yeah, it permeates your skin. It's as, as much a part of you as any other aspect of your DNA when you're growing up in a family business. I really got this beautiful picture of what that must have been like. I mean, just that snippet. I mean, did you know that you were always going to be in the business? I mean, was that something that was sort of maybe either explicitly or implicitly? It was more implicit. It was very clear, both that my grandfather and my parents would love for their children to to go into the family business, my sister included. But we had, so my father developed a rule. He didn't have to go through this rule when he joined the business, but he developed a rule that you have to work for three years outside of the business as a family member before you would be allowed to work for the company. So what that allowed me is as I was going through college, there was only one job I knew I was not getting upon graduation, and it was I could not work at the family business. So that took some pressure off where I got to do my best to entertain the idea that I wasn't being forced into this. It's very easy to feel like you're forced into a family business. And I really did my best going all the way through school and through my career afterwards to push it as far out of my mind as I could to try to get the concept in my head that I wasn't being forced into this and I was going to experiment with other things. So that was actually a great rule. It's something I share with my friends who have family businesses that I think was invaluable because it, it really did force me to go out. I had to go get a job that wasn't dependent on my last name and the boss being married to my mother, which was a great way to get work, trust me. But it really helped me gain some independence and self-confidence. Yeah, absolutely. I had a foreign mate that was in part of a family business, and it didn't sound like the dynamics were challenging. You know, I don't fully appreciate that, but there's definitely different dynamics when, like you said, the CEO is also, your boss is also your father. Yeah. Like, that's got to create some interesting dynamics. I mean, how was that growing up, and or as you, especially as you're trying to go create your own you know, identity in the world. It certainly has challenges and family businesses are like fingerprints. You know, they all are slightly different in the attitudes and ways that everybody approaches it. So my father's transition from his father who founded the company was different than my transition from my father. Partially, I benefited from my dad having received a business and he was now on the handing over a business side. So he remembered all the aspects that my grandfather didn't do well, that it took him a long time to hand over the reins and really give him control and stay out of the way. And my father really learned a lot of those lessons and was good about making those those steps faster than he had seen his father do it. So for me, there wasn't a ton of pressure. It was very implicitly clear that this was the career he wanted for me. But he did do his best to try to keep the pressure off until, uh, I'll give you a little aside, so I had been working about two and a half years out on my own, I'd been doing some marketing consulting and early versions of big data when big data wasn't a thing for some direct marketing companies. And my dad called me up one day and said, hey, you know, we haven't really had a strong conversation about you coming into the business. And I said, well, you know, my three-year clock isn't up. I was trying to delay it as long as possible. I really did feel likely that was where I wanted to go, but I was, I was really trying to keep my options as open as I could. And he said, well, here's the thing. He received an unsolicited offer to buy the business out of nowhere. And he said, it's a very good offer. And my dad was already not running the business day to day. He was just at the board level and semi-retired, you would say. And so he said, look, I'm not working in the business. If you're coming into the business in the next year or two, I will hold on to it and you can work in the business. If you don't think this is a path for you ever, then this is a good offer. It's a good time for me to cash out and close down the legacy. 
And so he was like, I'll give you the weekend <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> to think through. No pressure, dad. No pressure. I was living in San Diego. Going into the business at that point meant moving to Reno. After I had left for college, my dad moved the company to Reno. And the headquarters was in Klein Village at the time. And I remember so, the big building. Yeah, on the yeah. corner. Yep. One of the three stoplights in Incline Village. And so I knew it meant at least to start, I would be working my way up. I We had a, a sales office in Reno where I'd be working, a city I'd never lived in. And I had a girlfriend from college who was from Omaha originally. And we had both agreed staying in San Diego made sense. And we were enjoying that, but we hadn't quite gotten to the marriage conversation, let alone married and moved to a city you've never been to either conversation. So it was a long weekend for that conversation. <laughs> <Sounds like it. laughs> and that ended up in a, a wonderful wife of 20 years next month and a wonderful career in the business. Wow. Congratulations on both of those accounts. But so interesting how life is going along and then, you know, one phone call or one opportunity will change the trajectory of your life. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big awakening. It wasn't totally, it was making it a quick decision was totally out of the blue. The concept was not something I had never thought about. I certainly had thought a lot about it. And going through college, I went into undergrad undeclared because, again, I didn't want to narrow myself. Maybe poetry would be great. Maybe psychology would be great. Maybe English lit or whatever. And I took these classes and I hated them. I hated them all. I, I really didn't enjoy them. And then I took a business class and I was like, oh, well, that kind of made sense. Mm -hmm. And then I took an upper division business class. And I'm like, well, this really makes sense. This clicks for me. Mm -hmm. And so the more and more I got into it, because as we talked about in my childhood, like this permeated every aspect of my childhood. I was constantly hearing my grandfather, my dad talk about business, business issues and what was going on in the company. And we don't know what to do about this competitive threat. We had this problem with the product. How do we solve it? And, you know, that was my whole life it was sitting at every dinner table involved a conversation about the company. Almost, I mean, you were like, you could have been the boss baby, like <laughs> guy, you know, the former. I mean, obviously, it was just all of those things were you kind of learn through osmosis. It was just part of the world you're around you. And so I could imagine having a formal education on that just sort of solidified yeah. all that understanding. Yeah, it got more advanced. So when I turned 16, my whole life, my dad, you know, traveled for work and we lived about 40 minutes from LAX. And so I would see these black cars come pick him up, take him away to the airport. Parking at the airport was so expensive, the company paid for car service to take you to the airport. So I'd always seen these black cars my whole life come take my dad, drop him off. And I asked him, what, what do those cost? And he said, it's 50 bucks a trip. And I said, well, I'll do it for 45 bucks a trip now that I have a driver's license. And he said, okay, as long as here's the conditions. It can't interfere with school. And he often was taking flights at six in the morning or landing at midnight or whatever. If it doesn't interfere with school and you provide the same service, which in those days meant you met him at the gate, that's not possible now, but you met him at the gate, you carried his suitcase and all that stuff, then I'll let you drive me uh, whenever I have a trip that fits those criteria. So I started driving him to the airport, which was great money for me. And the great thing about that was it's six in the morning, you're bleary-eyed driving through Los Angeles, and I'd say, well, where are you going? I'm going to Memphis. What's going on in Memphis? Oh, well, this problem, this problem, this problem. And I'd be like, oh, well, can you do this. No, that's illegal. Oh, didn't know that. Can you do that? You know, and he'd be like, no, this is why that wouldn't work. You know, can, you know, and I would be throwing out ideas and trying to understand. And he'd explain to me, oh no, you know, that's, there's a reason why this wouldn't work. And so 16 to 18 during that period where I did that job as just a spare time thing, 
inadvertently, we didn't, neither of us, I think, intended it this way, but it turned into this, this more formalized classroom yeah. of, you know, you have 45 minutes of dead time with your dad in the car and we didn't have a lot else in common to talk about. So we, we talked about the business. It was, wow. it was what interested him and I found it interesting too. Wow. What did it, I really appreciate you sharing. I mean, you're really adding color to this experience of how you groomed, I guess, or how, you know, how you learned to, to go into the business. I mean, it's, it permeates your life in many different ways. I was thinking about when I was 16, I was getting free dogs and reselling them in the paper. So different, <laughs> different. there's a supply chain problem there, but yeah. it, that's, a, that's a whole other story. But I just love that experience. I mean, this is, you know, when you see entrepreneurs run through families, this is kind of why, right? Like you're just getting exposure to entrepreneurship yeah. and business at, at the earliest table. These are the conversations that happen at the yeah. dinner table. Well, family businesses do have a failure rate, much like any other business. There's always a kid coming up or cousin or what have you that that doesn't have the talent or inclination. Talent skill level is one. Inclination interest is another. Our business was not particularly sexy. So my sister, who received the same education and permeation, was never interested in it. She was very high tech. She's worked for Salesforce and Oracle and amazing software companies that are kind of sexy and interesting and aren't don't involve dunking paper and tar, which was really the bulk of our business, which is not thrilling. It's it's an awkward one at dinner conversations yeah. of what do you do? You know, like, well, I put tar on paper. How do what do you think of that? So having the the talent, having the interest and the drive, and then there's just luck. There's yeah. the law of averages that the 2008 recession almost completely obliterated our company because we were very dependent on construction, and construction pretty much stopped yeah. in 2008. And so when did you actually come into the business, just in that context? I, I joined in 04, and my background had been marketing. So once I got the call from my dad, are you joining or, or not? And I said, at the end of that very long, drawn-out weekend, said, I'd like to join— we started to talk about, okay, what did the steps look like? And one thing we discussed was once you get enmeshed in the business, you really probably won't have time to go get a broader education. So I went back and got my MBA before I joined the business. So I had done my at least three-year minimum purgatory, and I worked through through grad school too. Yeah. So I ended up with about five years of outside experience. But Got my MBA, so I had as much educational background as, as you could get, and I joined literally the day after my graduation, which was when I joined the business in 04. So we didn't have a marketing department, broadly speaking, so I started by building the marketing department and helping chaotic branding, chaotic messaging, chaotic advertising, and, and all that type of stuff. Fixed that up with another another employee within the business, started building product management, started taking on greater sales roles, and was working my way up through the business. And I took over the business in 08. In 08. CEO. God, what a good year to take it over. Well, it, it had pluses and minuses. <laughs> the minuses were we were literally on the bankruptcy courthouse steps. We were we were inches away. We had just completed an acquisition at the end of 06, levered up, had a lot of debt, and 75% of the addressable market disappeared wow. in housing starts. So that was the negative side. The positive side was all the pressure. My whole life had been told this phrase of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And there's versions of that saying in a multiple different cultures around the world. But broadly, it means that there's going to be a grandfather who builds it, a father who creates it, a father who builds it, and a son. the son will destroy it. And mm -hmm. as well as I could understand words, people have said that to me. Which is a lot of pressure when you're four to be told you're going to ruin your parents and your grandfather's legacy. Yeah, that is a lot of pressure. The one thing that was a blessing out of that horrible curse of taking over the business in 08 was I felt like that pressure was gone. Because when I took over the business, it was already failing. It was already essentially about to disappear. So if I failed, 
I kind of felt like I didn't own it. It was just this uh, horrible culmination of events. No matter what, this business was crashing into a tree anyways. Yeah. And sorry, you happen to be holding the wheel at the time, but we were already sure. going there. So I felt like in a weird way that took the pressure off of just do what you think is right. Do it as quick as you can and see if it works. If not, no harm, no foul. So that was lucky in a weird way. Yeah, no, I guess, I mean, when you frame it that way, I could, I can totally see that. I mean, I, you know, it's hard for me to internalize that pressure you must have felt, but I, I guess in some ways you're right. Like if it's already going to go down because of the economy, then yeah. it's not my issue. And, but then of course now you, you know, the story has a happy ending, you know, you, yeah, you, yeah. you, you pulled it out of the depths <laughs> of despair and off mm -hmm. the bankruptcy court steps and then drove it in t for how many more years? Full, basically a decade. Yeah. It was early 2018 is when the sale happened. So. So it was kind of the first three years was me and my team working on a turn. It was all a turnaround story of we were selling factories, layoffs, you know, all the horrible stuff you don't want to have to deal yeah. with as a manager or an entrepreneur that are terrible, but it's what you got to do to survive, to keep the business going. Sure. And then the next three or four years was kind of the growth story. You know, housing starts were coming back. The people were starting to build again slowly, but but going in the right direction. So we were building out more products and systems and new customers and finding ways to grow the business organically, which was wildly successful. We had great period there. And then as we kind of got into 2016, 2017, 2018, we were running out of organic growth. We had eaten as many competitors as we could eat on the battlefield. So we were starting to look at M&A and starting to acquire competitors. You know, can we expand into this market? There was We didn't really sell much in Canada, so we were looking to buy a competitor in Canada and see if we can move out that way and that kind of thing. So I sort of see like three strata of my, yeah. even though it was only a 10-year period, there was kind of three strata yeah. of time period of we were doing wildly different things as a team. Fascinating. And then ultimately, you, like you said in the beginning, you you kind of put a competitor in a difficult situation that mm -hmm. led to a so You don't have to go into too many specifics, but like how did, like kind of give me the dynamics of how that all worked out. Yeah, I, I kind of think of it as there were several checkers moves that added up to one great chess move. I'd like to take credit that it was brilliance. It was really making good moves on little situations over a couple year period. So this was a key supplier they'd supplied us and competitors. So it's a it's a very small world in our in our space. And they had been supplying us this product that we could only buy from them. They had some problems where they put us on allocation. They couldn't manufacture enough of the product to sustain our needs because of a problem with their machinery. And so we said, well, obviously that releases us from our need to buy exclusively from you. We can buy it from other competitors. And they said yes. Now, what they intended to say was yes, but temporarily. And I assumed they meant yes, permanently. And so we started buying from a secondary supplier. And now we had two suppliers. And when you have two suppliers, that's how you start to move prices. Because yeah. it was a large product and we would move a million dollars worth of purchasing back and forth between the two the two suppliers, and until this one moved his price a little bit, and to reward him, we'd move mm -hmm. a million bucks back the other way and get them paying attention. So we we took a significant percentage of margin out of their pockets and put it into ours over the next two-year period. Yeah. And there was multiple minor steps in there, multiple other small checkers moves. Eventually, this supplier, having now hurting quite a bit, they had lower volume because they were sharing it with somebody else and lower margins because we had, had put a lot of pressure on them. So they really didn't like this business much anymore. Had made a lot of mistakes and were having trouble delivering to us. And I came to them and said, look, we need to stop buying from you entirely. You've been 
costly and quality control and delivery and some other problems we've had with you. We'll do so as gentlemen very slowly and make sure you don't get hurt in the process, but we're going to need to depart. And they said, well, you, you can't do that. That's really bad for us. We have a manufacturing facility that's almost dedicated to your business. And so that's great, but I paid to make decisions for my business, not what's good for your business. And like I said, we'll do it in an ethical way, but we're this is what's best for our business. And they said, well, we can't have you make decisions for your business anymore. We're going to remove you. And I said, well, we're not for sale. And, and they said, well, you know, we'll keep upping the offer until you decide you are for sale. And at some point, everything is for sale. Yeah. So yeah, they, true to their word, they got to an offer that that made a lot of sense to me. I don't think made sense on an investment basis, but there was reasons why it was more valuable to them sure. than it was You to always me. want to get bought on strategic value, not necessarily. Yes, yeah, it was I mean, very strategic. Better. And there was a yeah. lot of other lines between the yeah. business that made a lot of sense that really strengthened their business. And it was owned by a private equity group that has recently sold it to a strategic publicly traded company. And I think our business as a component of that added a lot of value. It was a good deal for them. I think yeah, it made yeah. a lot of sense. Fascinating. Well, thank you for walking me through that whole story. I mean, it's just really... I. You know, we got a, a million questions, but I guess one of the things that comes up for me is you ended that legacy. You, these were your words before in your family. Yeah. How did that feel? Like, what was that like to sell it? I mean, I, obviously, it's better than the uh, t-shirt to t-shirts or whatever the metaphor. Yeah, you know? Shirt sleeves is a shirt, shirt sleeves. Sleeve. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's partially true in that we don't have the business anymore, so that part is true. I would say that I have an asterisk on my version of those <laughs> shirt sleeves. So I always say, I said this the day we sold it, and it's still now four and a half years later, still feel the same that from a head perspective, mentally, it was the best decision I ever made. From a heart perspective, it's something I'll think about every day the rest of my life. You know, So the legacy part is difficult. From a head perspective, I had seen, you know, this is a difficulty in family businesses, is conceptualizing the idea that the business wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. So by that, I mean, the business had existed for every minute of every day of my entire life. Mm -hmm. And the business had existed for every minute of every day of my father's life. Yeah. It was started before he was born. So there was nobody in living memory in my family who could conceptualize a world where this business didn't exist, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it's very difficult for most people in legacy businesses that have gone on for generations to even come up with that idea. This is as natural as the sun coming up. For me, I almost saw the business disappear in 08. So the reality of that, that this is a dynasty that cannot be broken, was broken for me. The risks were real, and I saw firsthand what it would cost to overcome those risks when they come. It was incredibly painful to go through 08, 09, and oh, 10 sure. to, to get us out. So looking at those risk factors and looking at, okay, a one-time payday that can be invested in a stock market and a broad basket of various companies, so I don't wake up every day and look at the housing start numbers and wonder what's construction doing, what's interest rates doing for mortgages and all these things that are leading indicators on my business. Now I can be invested in Amazon and Facebook and Google and all the rest and not care so much about any one specific yeah. business. Yeah. I could care about the broader economy and that's a better way to make money. So from a taking care of myself and my family standpoint, that's why I say it's good from a head standpoint. Yeah. It's a much lower risk profile of if you have enough money to invest to generate an income for yourself, that's a much lower risk environment than being an entrepreneur who has a factory that could explode, sure. that, you know, somebody could get terribly hurt or, you know, a product could fail in the field and you could be sued for a lot of money. And, like, all these risk factors exist for us every day, and I don't worry about those risk factors yeah. anymore. So 
that part of it made a lot of sense. And feeling like you were getting more than the thing is worth certainly totally added helps. to that decision factor, right? But, you know, given that, I mean, what about your kids? I mean, did you have any thoughts on, you know, what, did you have an expectation that maybe your son or your daughter would, would be in the business? Yeah. So I have one daughter and a son. I think they were 10 and 12 at the time. So really difficult to forecast <laughs> where they're going. Sure. My daughter at the time was very focused on being a veterinarian for penguins. Excellent. A lucrative business. Super important, though, Growth for the world. industry. So she didn't seem like she was super interested. But at 12, also hard to determine if the penguin thing's going to yep. pan out or not. And so, yeah, really difficult to make that adjustment. You know, that's part of the heart side of that yeah. equation of, gosh, they never had a chance to, to see if they wanted it. You can look at the glass half full and half empty from the perspective of they also never need to feel like they're pressured to do this. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's definitely – I'm just curious because, I mean, you had just a, such a very different upbringing. It was sort of implied and then here it, it ends with you and now you, you – know, obviously you opens up different opportunities. But it is a very different way of being, right? I mean, the, it is. Yeah, that's difficult. I mean, my kids, I think, to the best they could articulate it at 10 and 12, would say the same thing. Like, dad's never said, you have to work in the company, but – I know it would make dad happy, So, which it would. I would have loved it if, if the kids could have worked in the company and could have worked underneath me and that sort of thing. But I also now have the ability, whatever their dream is, if they want to be in waterproofing or they want to take care of penguins, I can help them start those businesses Absolutely. and work with them on that kind of stuff. Somebody told me this the other day, which I thought was brilliant about raising kids. You kind of go from this place where you're a manager to a consultant to a board member. <laughs> yeah, right. And I like so that. I think that's it really spoke to me. And, yeah. you know, you obviously with the sale, you'll be able to help support them in those different ways. But I, there was kind of a maybe a clunky segue into this idea of like, what does it really mean to be a board member? Because my question is, I mean, you obviously had a lot of help along the way, like you've been part of YPO mm -hmm. for a long time. So tell me a little bit about that and, mm -hmm. you know, how that worked to help support you through which was undoubtedly, you know, some challenging times, some amazing times. Sure. Yeah. W what's been your experience with YPO? So YPO, Young Presidents Organization, if somebody doesn't know what that is, is a peer learning group. If you're listening in Reno, there's an EO chapter here, Entrepreneurs Organization, which is incredibly similar. They're almost the same exact organization. It's peers of similar backgrounds helping one another. So the criteria is for YPO is... Generally, a fairly large size company, you have to join before you're 45 and you're kicked out at 50. That's the young part. It's usually younger people who have an immense amount of responsibility on their plate. And so you have this peer group you can learn from that is balancing not only your business issues, but your personal as well. So other people of that age range have a 10 and a 12 year old at home and are trying to figure out what it's like. You know, I missed the last three Little League games because I had to fly to China for a supplier issue and that sort of thing. So that stuff is tough and not everybody in your social group can relate to those things. And so it was immensely valuable to me. Where I kind of understood this initially was, so when I took over in 08, I was 30 years old, had a brand new baby, and a lot of pressure on my shoulders as the company is literally failing around me. and. I have people reporting to me that are older than my own father. And so I'm dealing with a lot of issues. Yeah. How do you turn around this business? How do you give commands to somebody who's yeah. who's more than double your age? How do you balance life with family? All these various things. And I was lucky enough that our company already had a board structure in the business that existed. So I inherited this board, which as a 30-year-old looking for answers, you know, it's really difficult when there's a problem that nobody in a generation has seen. 
What's the answer? And so having this group of people with an immense amount of experience that I could rely on, that also were not getting a paycheck from me per se, that were not relying on their livelihood like all the rest of my employees were, so they could be a little bit more honest when the emperor has no clothes on, was absolutely critical to my ability to be effective in that role. And so a couple of years after I took over, that's when I found YPO. My father had actually been a member of YPO and I was familiar with it, but I finally found that I had the time to, to join as I stabilized the business and just got more of it. And it's more personal, but I'm a huge believer in peer groups being able to give you the advice. You know, you need as many perspectives as you can get, as many honest perspectives as you can Absolutely. get. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I feel super strongly about this as well. I was a member of EO for, I don't know exactly what the count is. It was like 12 or 13 years or something like that. And I'm still part of the same forum. I mean, we went rogue years ago and yeah. I don't have a business anymore, so yeah. it doesn't matter. But just like, I can't separate out EO from all the amazing things in my life. Like I think all the great things, probably other than my children, came as a result of EO. Like having a peer group, having people that really know you over a long period of time, different perspectives to help. It's just been, it's been one of the most rewarding things in my life. I, I recommend it to everybody, mm -hmm. whether it's EO or YPO. My brother was in YPO in uh, San Diego for oh, a cool. years. Oh, cool. Yeah. And there's other versions of this. There's Vistage and Tab, the alternate board group and whatever. And they're all based on the same general principle as are boards of companies, which I encourage businesses that don't have boards to think about having a board as well. People say, oh, I don't want to lose control and I don't want to have other people telling me what to do. And it's you know, that's the wrong perspective on it. It's nobody's telling you what to do. It's people who are helping you think of perspectives you didn't bring yourself. So unless you're absolutely convinced you're the smartest person in the room. Which is dangerous. Which is, yeah, but that's great. Go off. I don't, I'm not going to follow you. I don't people like that ever. <laughs> yeah. I've said many times, because I do some angel investing now, I'm not investing in a company with $10 million in sales or more that doesn't have a board. Yeah. That's insane to me that yeah. there is no controls, focus, other perspectives, and chance to slow down and look at the strategy of the business from an outside perspective. Yeah. That's just poor governance in my book. Which, I, I mean, I totally agree. And, and those sounds like those are hard-fought lessons. So just kind of going back, I mean, now all of a sudden this thing that's been part of your life, your entire life, is now gone. Yeah. <laughs> then what? Right? Like, here you are. You've sold the business. Great, great, great return. Hero. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do on the Monday after you don't show up at work anymore? Like, yeah. It was weird. Well, a pandemic put some weird crimps in that. So I worked for the company for a year and a half. Okay. And I was helping integrate branding and manufacturing and sales forces and, and those types of things. And after a while, just I didn't feel like I was adding the value I wanted to, and I didn't feel like the direction I wanted to go was the way the company wanted to go. It's private equity owned, which is very different on an investment horizon than family owned. You know, I think generationally, and they thought like, like hey, we're going to sell this in two to three years yeah. here. But, well, they were well into the investment at that point, so they were on the two to three year horizon, and they just they just sold the business here. So it was about two year two and a half years after I sold my company into the bigger group. And so that's fine. That's, it's a different perspective, but it wasn't my perspective. And so I didn't like managing to the quarter versus thinking about the long term of the business. So I wasn't enjoying it and said, you know, I think you'll be better at enacting your vision without me here. So I retired middle of 2019. So, yeah, your question was, what do I do now and how yeah. do you find fulfillment? So I'm lucky that I'm working on kind of the tippy top of my Maslow's hierarchy of sure. needs. You know, I've got shelter and food and many of those things handled, but I'm embarking on a new journey of yeah. what do you really want to do without 
the responsibility of dealing with this thing I inherited and all that. The honest answer is I'm making it up every day and tweaking and trying to improve and dial in on on what the designed life looks like. That's yeah. what I've been calling it is the designed life. And what's what's a good balance between things I'm interested in and I find fun and enjoyable versus things that are engaging we need struggle in our life. We need challenge. There's a reason that people come back from the space station and their muscles have atrophied away because we need that gravity. We need something to push against, to exercise against. Sure. So if I just retired in my mid-40s and played golf every day, I don't know that I'd be able to even eat applesauce in yeah. 10 years. You know, I'd be <laughs> that's mentally, I think that's really difficult on yeah. you. And I'm not interested in that. I find business and strategy and and thinking these problems through that I dealt with every day, I find that really fun yeah. and engaging. So so I chose to stay engaged in that. So I do a lot of board work now. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest chunk of my time is is board advising for different companies. I just got back from teaching, guest lecturing a couple classes at UNR this morning, which has been fun to do for a few professors getting to come in and share stories and engage with the kids and give them a real world perspective that's outside of the book perspective yeah. of what they're doing. I've been writing articles. The biggest ones now at this point, I'm mostly spending my time with Family Business Magazine. Weren't you writing in Forbes for a while? I did Forbes for a while too. I just actually stopped writing for Forbes. <laughs> so many of my pieces are very opinion-based, you know, like it's not like I went to school for the nonsense I spout and have been but you're spouting so you're very good so at creating metaphors, man. I really, yeah. this is one of the things I always appreciate. <laughs> I've got a bunch of like Christian metaphors that I've penciled down. My CFO always gave me trouble about like that I couldn't finish a thought without making a metaphor about a car. Usually, like I'd always be like, man, if you're a Lexus, then you got to be in front of that Ford and you got to come over there. No Lamborghinis going to be, in, you know, so that's it's how I talk. I'm a marketing guy at heart. So you got to put branding in there somehow. So, yeah, Forbes is very focused on triple fact checking everything. And I was like, hey, this is an opinion piece. You can't triple fact check my opinions. And they're like, well, you know, we we'd like to. And yeah. so Family Business Magazine has been more, it's more about the experience of running sure. a family business. So that's been kind of fun being more focused on more of my peer group. You sit on a couple different boards. Yeah. What's your process to determine if it's a good board fit? And like kind of what do you look for? Like, how would you advise other entrepreneurs to think about how to build a board? So maybe, like, what do you look for? And then what advice do you have for entrepreneurs yeah. about that? Let me take the last part first. I think it's a little bit easier of what you should look for in a board. I generally have a couple of bullet points for entrepreneurs when they say, oh, you know, I'm about to build a board. What kind of people should I be looking for? And so the first check that I, I say that they should look for is think about the aspect of your business skill set that is your least favorite part. For me, I like finance the least. I'm a, a marketing guy. I love the sales and marketing side. I really enjoyed manufacturing and building things, but I did not like sitting down with the balance sheet and trying to track various ratios and whatever. It was less fun. So I always made sure I had a board member who was a strong finance person. And because what they're going to do is they're going to force you to spend time with your weaknesses, which is the same reason why you hire a personal trainer at the gym. Yeah. It's not because I don't know how to stand on an elliptical machine. It's because I need somebody to motivate me to do the things I probably am avoiding. Maybe I like the elliptical machine, but don't want to go lift weights. And that trainer is going to say, this is what's good for you. Go do it. So first and foremost, fill in your weakness. Second, look for where is the business going and who fits that. So by that, I mean, are we about to expand internationally? Let's find somebody who expanded a business internationally. Are we about to go do a bunch of M&A to acquire companies? 
who's acquired a bunch of companies? Do we need to expand our product development? Who had a really strong R&D department in their their business and it is used to inventing products? Whatever the strategic direction you're going, is there anybody who's walked on that path before you that can show you the way, that can tell you, hey, when you go internationally, always do X. And you can learn from their, their mistakes. And then third, and usually people take this list in reverse order, third that most people think of that I always think should be last is somebody with some experience in your industry. That's nice. It's good to have. But like I said, I think those two other things are much more important and they translate industries. But lastly, if if you've got no other tiebreakers between candidates you're looking at, get somebody who's in your industry who knows what you're talking about, who's done what you're doing, who has a Rolodex of people that they can talk to and they can open doors for you that you've never had opened before and can relate to what, what it is you're working on. And so with, all, with those criteria, how do you right-size a board member for the stage of business? I mean, you and I were talking before about, you know, you're looking for a board role and, you know, the revenue of that company was a little, quite a bit more significant than than you had run and you, and you declined because of that. I mean, how do you, so from the entrepreneur's perspective, I mean, how do you decide that? I mean, you want relevant experience in the, in that range or you want to push above? Like, how, how do you Yeah, I think this is all categories, to quote, Supreme Court justice, you know, when you see it type deal. Yeah. So somebody who's had a business that's 5x larger than your business might be relevant. Somebody with who's 10x bigger than your business might have a hard time understanding why you can't get a loan, you know, yeah. at, where you're like, well, at your level, of course you can get a loan. At my level, you can't. So you still want some relatability. I think in general, you usually want somebody who's been there and done that. That's what a board is usually for, not somebody who's up and coming. Maybe somebody bright who's up and coming, but if their business that they were running is a quarter your size, they maybe aren't that valuable yet. They're on their way to being valuable, but they're not there yet. But I I would weigh those, those kind of three criteria I already listed first and then start to look, pick through particulars of – size, experience, educational background, and those types of things. Cultural fit. Cultural fit is a big deal as well. This is, you know, somebody who's really cutthroat and is telling you, yeah, you should lay off a bunch of people and that's not your style of leadership. That could be valuable. That could be very detrimental. You really need to think those things through. Yeah. It's it's like any other interview, right? Just on that note, you know, we were talking before about the power of YPO. You know, you had these kind of three groups of people. You had like the family business people, you had the entrepreneurs, and then you had the Howard Guns. And in that context, it sounded like it was really powerful to have the let's, you know, lay them all off perspective, yeah. even though that may not be you know, the perspective that you would yeah. lead with, but to have that perspective. But but what I'm hearing is I mean it's that's a great YPO or a place like that's a great place to get those perspectives. But on your board, you're probably wanting somebody that's a little more culturally aligned with you. Yes, I would separate it in those two ways. The YPO forum, as well as an EO forum, is much more all-encompassing in your life too. You're yeah. you're not just dealing with business issues; you're dealing with personal issues. You know, the stress of my job has put a strain on my marriage. How do you guys deal with it, and, yeah. and those types of things, as well as how do I speed up R and D to turn out new products next year? All those are interesting, but within your business, it's much more singular in focus within your board of what they're trying to accomplish. So the other aspect you have is there's a much more direct contact with your business. That's a difference between a forum. Nobody in my business knows anybody in my forum. They were completely separated from one another. So if there was advice I didn't like, it never made it yeah. back to the office. Sure. But the board does interact with, especially the way we ran our board meetings. We had one of our four board meetings a year was a full day on site 
brought in multiple members of the senior management team and that sort of thing. So our board members had a lot of interaction with a lot of people. And if they were very culturally different to what we were trying to accomplish, they had a palpable effect because, you know, my VP of manufacturing heard this guy say, hey, if you don't lay off people next next month, you know, I'm going to raise a stink at the next board meeting. Well, he's going to take that pretty seriously. So there are some differences in sort of safety locks between those yeah. those different types of advisors to consider. But as a leader, I mean, it's really valuable to get all those perspectives, right? And then to be able to discern how to navigate through that. I mean, and obviously managing a board is a very different animal than working inside a forum. I mean, you have to yeah. manage the board and forum is different. But, it, you know, it sounds like you're getting lots of great input from all of those different places. I, I try to listen to as many voices as I can, and I've always found it valuable. It seems to me insane to not want to be seeking as much advice as you can. So I've known you for, I don't know, a decade or something like that. I've really enjoyed the times we got together. You bring a totally different perspective than people in my forum, people on my board. You've got a set of experiences that just as a friend, it's awesome to hear. It's really interesting to hear those things. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. So, But we all have those people yeah, in our yeah, totally. life, right? I mean, I think the things we're talking about, uh, either a board or a forum, sound very formalized to a lot of people. But the truth is we all have these structures. We just create them organically and we call them friends yeah. or neighbors or, you know, whatever. You have these kitchen cabinet boards that you create in your life, regardless of you're running a business or you're not. Yeah. Everybody has these structures. Their spouse is a part of their structure. Absolutely. Their parents are a part of their structure, et cetera. And this is just a, a couple of formats that are more formalized yeah. around the added stresses of running a business and being an entrepreneur. Totally. You know, I kind of look at it as like you're building a container. Each relationship is its own container mm. and they do have their own set of agreements and rules and, and different elements to that. Yeah. That helps me look at it because, you know, your friends may, you know, you go to talk to them about a problem and you might get a attaboy or a, like a lot of empathy, but they may not challenge you yeah. in a way versus a forum where, you know, it's kind of designed. If you, and if I'm going to go in there, I mean, maybe I'll get a lot of love, but a lot of times they're like, hey, did you think about this? Or I think you have a blind spot here. And I find that, you know, like it's good to get some empathy and some understanding, but it's also good to see where your blind spots are or have a mirror put up from yeah. you. And then, you know, same thing with the board. You have a different a container in that way. I think it's most critical with the board. I tried to be the friendly boss with the open door policy and all that stuff, and I think I did a good job at it. But to some degree, at the end of the day, anybody who's telling me, boss, you're getting it wrong, has a paycheck with my name on it. Yeah. And they have to be very concerned about that reaction, no matter how even keeled I am and how much I've yeah. told them, please tell me, tell me when I'm getting it wrong. Yeah. You have to remember there is a degree of barrier there, no matter what you do, to get that done. So a board, hopefully, that's another aspect of a board member to me that is valuable is somebody who does not need this position. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want somebody who absolutely needs this position in their life, like the, the whatever compensation you're offering is yeah. is critical to them or status or something related to it. Somebody who really wants it, you don't want. Because yeah, that's such a great point. They're not engaged. Same reason. They're not going to tell you the emperor has no clothes because they don't want to get fired. Hopefully, you're not firing just the board members who disagree with you. That's bad practice. But you need them to feel unfettered or else it's not valuable. There's all these services. No, or not all of them, but I've noticed a couple of these services where they're all, you'll see some LinkedIn, you know, help find board members and do it. You know, and it just like I looked at that for a hot second and I thought, you know, that is just not the way to go about it. I get the sentiment and, you know, may, especially for startups, if you don't really have good access, maybe that'll create some more access. But it just I don't know. There's something about that where it seems like the incentives are misaligned. 
mind? Well, so I'm okay with there are board search firms that company pays and says, here's the profile. I need somebody who's strong in finance. I need somebody who's run a business of X size, yada, yada. They give them all the list and they go out much like any executive recruiting firm. I'm okay with that. There's one like board Z is one of the ones that fits the description you're talking about that I talked to at one point too. It's like, hey, we place people with boards. And I was like, oh, I'm recently retired and that's my goal. And, you know, it took me a while to build up the companies I'm working with. So, yeah, I'd like to talk to you. Their version is you pay to be a part of their group. And to me, I guess it's a corollary of the incentives are not aligned, as you put it, of the person who should be paying to want this position absolutely should be the company, not the individual looking for the board position, because that's a bad alignment of incentives in my mind of what you really want there. I mean, I get that it's helpful to people as they're climbing the ladders in their corporations and in their career, and not everybody has the good fortune of being born a son of the CEO. So, you know, it's hard for me to cast shadows on people making their own way to the top, because I certainly had an easier way of doing it. But those incentives seem wildly misaligned to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Like, what would be your ideal board? I know you sit on a couple of them, but like for where you're at today, like what is, like if you could just wave your magic wand and be like, this is the perfect board seat for me, what would, yeah. what would that be? I, what I'm focused on right now, I don't have any that are family businesses. And I'm really excited about getting, adding at least one to to my grouping that that is a family business, just because it's such a unique set of experiences to understand. You can certainly describe it to people who are not in family businesses, but nobody gets the, I had to take this with me to Thanksgiving dinner, this argument, (laughs) you know, the aspect of it until you've lived it so much. So I think that's a really helpful perspective I bring and I enjoy thinking through those aspects. So, So a family business is one I'm very focused on. I really like manufacturing businesses just versus there are so many amazing startups, especially in the digital world. And it's great. You know, I have apps on my phone. I understand generally how they work, but I couldn't program one. And um, maybe the guy who dunks things in tar is probably not the guy for you. And I've said that. To Unless you have like an automated tar dunking app that you could just go up and down a lot. on. It's what the market's been clamoring for. <laughs> right. We all, we all want the automatic tar dunker. So I really like manufacturing businesses. I'm also more of my experience is more B2B sales through distribution versus B2C. I'm a marketing guy at heart. So B2C is the candy that gets everybody in the door into a marketing degree. We all think we're going to make Nike ads for the Super Bowl. It's generally not what marketing is. but So I get that side of things, but I'm more comfortable in how do you set up a sales force to work with a distribution channel to pull the products through to the end user and that sort of thing. So I love those kinds of things too. Those are always fascinating to me. And again, what you're looking for in a board member is somebody who can bring experiences from further down the road than where you're standing that can tell you hey, you know, don't stub your toe in the dark here. This is where you're going to have a problem. So you don't have to make the same mistakes. Other people have made those mistakes. Why should you do it too? Those are places that really fit in my background where I think I can add differentiated value for companies. I'm sure you can. And we're just going to kind of throw it out through the world. If you're like a family business (laughs) that manufactures things that needs somebody that really understands marketing, we know who to come talk to. Yeah. What a great way to pay forward your experience, right? Mm -hmm. This is an, I mean, I've had 
limited experience with boards. I mean, I had a lot, I had an advisory board and I had an insider board that was not functional. So I don't have a lot of direct experience, yeah. but you know, just the advisory board was supremely useful. I mean, in a different way, but just that role of having that outside perspective and just, you know, just based on conversations, I meaning you, you're a very critical thinker and mm-hmm. very thoughtful and intelligent. I think you'd be great, make a great board member. So <laughs> I'm sure you'll find more role. I mean, I know you've got a couple of them and you can only take yeah. so many at a time. But. Yeah. That's another aspect. Like I said, this designed life concept that I've been playing with for the last couple of years is trying to find balances between, so probably one of my bigger passions is business thinking and strategy and these types of things. I am also a very avid woodworker. I build furniture as a hobby and love. I have been loving all the extra time in my wood shop. I'm an avid skier and snowboarder and play tennis and, and you know, have many other interests. So this design life stage I'm fortunate enough to be in involves me trying to figure out how to balance those different passions and what is a good balance. The the board work or writing articles or guest lecturing and those kinds of things are intellectually challenging and they're interesting and they're fun in a different way than building a coffee table is. Yeah, you sure. know, they're they're different types of entertainment. And, and I, I like exercising both sides of, yeah, of my absolutely. brain there. I hear you're quite a good word worker too. I, I've seen some of the work you've done. <laughs> a couple of things came out you. It's so funny. My, my dad started a company years ago called Life Design. And it was all about, like, creative design life. It's pretty funny. I wish he would have maintained the domain name. I think he's got Life Design Inc. or something like that. But just this idea of, like, you know, how do you create the adventure of your own life? So it's just, that's always been, like, I grew up with that. When I was 18, I got to go through these seminars and, you know, we learned about work style preferences. And again, it was all dated circa like 1980. So it was all in like Indiana Jones themes and stuff. But, but I mean, it's still, it's still true today and probably even more so. I think people have so many more choices. So there is a paradox of choice. Like how do you, so how do you kind of filter down the things that really make it into your world? I mean, you know, you only have a great book, by the way, called 4,000 Weeks. I'm telling everybody about it. You know, you only, that's like 76 years. So the average person gets about 4,000 weeks. So for everything that you choose, you have to say no to a lot of the things. So like, what is your current, you know, I'm sure this is evolving, but what's your current criteria for what shows up in your world? I'm much more choosy. Yeah, I keep adding and taking away different things as part of this design life concept, which I thought was really creative, apparently has existed since the 80s, as well as several people since I've been saying it when I retired a couple of years ago have been like, oh, you read that book. And I'm like, what book? <laughs> and there's a design life book, which I'm halfway through right now because so many people have told me like, oh, I read that book. And I'm like, I didn't do it based on this book, but it is good. And it is actually incredibly similar to, to all the things I've been talking about. So the criteria of taking things away, you know, on the board side is much easier of does it seem like it's a cultural fit? Does it seem like it's a fit for my background and where I think I can help? I talked to somebody with an app today who was like, hey, I got this great app. Maybe you can come be a board advisor. I'm like, again, you know, unless it's a tar dunking app, it's I I don't know that I'm really terribly helpful there. Happy to have a coffee with you, which is which is what this process was. But trying to understand, is there something I can do here where I add differentiated value? If not, it's a waste for you. And much more importantly, it's a waste for me. So let's be cautious about that type of stuff. All the other aspects of life that I'm saying no to or saying yes to, there's a bunch of mentorship groups I've been a part of or accelerators yeah. that I participated Which I appreciated. I mean, you've been very generous with your time over the years and oh, yeah. helped many a startup and, you know, and gotten involved in Angel. Every time I call you, you're like, I think you've always pretty much said yes yeah. for the most part. I try to to the right people. Sure. There's certainly bridges that get burned and you go, okay, not saying yes to that anymore. Or different programs I've participated in where... 
I'll give a broad example, a program where the company is very appreciative, wants to listen to your advice, wants to work through it and act on it versus I have worked with companies or in programs where they almost treat it like they're doing you a favor for you to volunteer your time to go talk to them. Those that don't seem to be respectful of my time, I'm not respectful of their time. You know, there it's a two-way street in any kind of volunteering. You know, I'm trying to maximize when I am giving back if in what way am I making a maximized return yeah. on that effort. I always figure we all hopefully want to do good in this world sure. and I can ladle soup out of a soup kitchen. That does good for somebody and I'm all for that. I happen to also have some background and experiences that not everybody can do some of the stuff I get to do. And there's people with much better experiences who do much more work than I do. And God bless them. I'm glad they're out there doing that kind of stuff. But I want to maximize. I'm very much being having the operations management piece of my life. I'm all about efficiency, much to my wife's chagrin sometimes. I'm all about like, how do we optimize? How do we make it most efficient? So if I put out one hour of effort, how do I get the most impact out of that? And if I could help somebody build up their business, make it better, hire three people. Maybe we're going to be in line at a soup kitchen. That's a much better thing than me ladling out a bowl of soup. So I'm always trying to maximize that impact yeah. as best I can. You'll really like 4,000 Weeks. I yeah. Mean, you got you to read this. Yeah. It, you know, there's, a whole, there's a whole section on the efficiency trap, which I, we won't get into, but it's a whole, it'll it'll definitely be a different perspective for you to think mm. about that, which you'll like, you know. I'm going to have to see if it can your, talk me out of efficiency. That's Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that we should talk you out of efficiency, but it is definitely an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, I won't go off on a tangent about that, but, you know, it sounds like you're like you're going through a work in process to discover what's, the, you know. What is Absolutely. The- so, so in my YPO group, we have started. So we, I have my main forum, which is like the forums in EOs we've discussed. I've started a secondary forum with two other people who have sold their businesses and are retired in their 40s. We're called the sellouts. And <laughs> it, it is way more fun than my normal forum because we're talking about all exactly these issues, which are unique issues. It's the least sympathetic support group on the planet. But you try to figure out, like, we're all bumbling through this together, trying to figure out what brings you joy, what brings you meaning. It would be, like I said, it'd be easy to golf every day or... But I don't think it would be. I mean, I think that's a myth, right? I think a lot of people that are working kind of like have this idea, like, I'm going to get to some in state where I can just play golf. And to your point before, I mean, there's never an end to the problems until your last day on the planet. And like, you really want that? And so, but it, I, I think so often people kind of have that in the back of their minds, like that's winning. And then they show up there, like you guys, you have been thrust there at a young age. So, I mean, it is kind of an existential question. It is. It is. And yeah, I'm fortunate to be wrestling with them, but it's a wrestle nonetheless. You know, all the studies in happiness and and those types of things always show that money buys happiness up to about $100,000 in annual income. And past that, the plateau for each additional dollar, it's negligible. So money buys happiness once you've covered your basic needs. Again, the bottom part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid. Past that, you really have to think more about the things that bring you joy, which are usually relationships, health and physical fitness, meaning to your life structure, you know, a bunch of things that are counterintuitive to what we dream about when we sit in our cubicles, because I've sat in my cubicle dreaming of, gosh, I wish there was the day that I wasn't working in this job. Usually more in my work before I worked in my own business. But like I said, I worked for a number of years for other people and had bosses I hated and did all the stuff that that we all experience. And you go, oh, yeah, wouldn't it be great if I was sitting on a beach with a daiquiri? The reality of that three weeks into daiquiris Mm -hmm. and 
easily starting diabetes and yeah. and all that is very different than you would think than than the fantasy version yeah, implies. Sure. So so it's it, it's interesting to try to do that self discovery and figure out what what you really enjoy in life and it's still a process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know what? I'm curious if you really think out like long long term because you have that ability to think, mm-hmm. you know, 10, 20 years. I mean, do you have any thoughts on like what you want to be true in 10 years time that's not true today or does that does that help guide your thinking? Yeah, the weird speed bump looking out that far is not really being able to understand what life would look like with my kids not living at home. So my youngest is in 8th grade. So we've got four and a half years or so left until we're empty nesters. Yeah. Right now, with kids' sports and academics and everything else, it's nearly a full-time job for two of us to be shuttling these kids all over yeah. all over Reno to their various sporting events and all that. Yeah, the youth sports industrial complex that we were talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a thing. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a powerful, powerful business. And I'm a my eldest is about to be 16, about to have her driver's license. So a big part of those duties are about to change yeah. wildly. So that is a huge speed bump about four and a half years out that because a big chunk of my day is spent trying to be as good a father as I can be, especially as it relates to there was big chunks of their life I was not there for. Part of the business demanded flying off to China and, and all these different things and being away on a lot of trips. So trying to do my best with the time I have left, you know, sort of the 4,000 weeks concept, yeah. but for your kids. And when you think about the amount of time you get with your kids, you know, after they're 18, you get very little time left. You really spent 90% of the time you're going to get with your kids before yeah. they're 18. Oh, it's like something like 400 weeks yeah. left, right? Yeah. I mean, at least for where I stand. I mean, I got a 12-year-old, so yeah. Yeah. So that's the tough thing about looking out there. So there, there's two big unknowns. What does life look like without my kids at home? And the various, you know, you talk about the dreams. My wife and I sit around and talk about different dream ideas. Maybe we'll travel the world more and it, we both enjoy travel and that sort of thing. The other unknown is as much as there were tough parts of running a business, there was parts I really loved. I really loved working with the team every day. I really loved, yeah. you know, gathering a group and achieving a goal bigger than any one of us could achieve. Yeah. You know, that part of leadership is really enjoyable to me. So am I going to stay away from that forever? I really don't know. At this point, I am pretty exhausted from what it took to do what we did in our business, and I'm not really interested in it. But I invest in these companies. I work with these companies. And a lot of them, I start to develop. They're like your adopted children, and you develop a lot of fondness for them. And if they had trouble and they said, you know, hey, we'd really like to use you as the day-to-day leader for a couple of years to get us through a rough patch or something – I could see that happening. I could see me being excited by that. The call to arms has to be exciting enough for me to want to suit up and jump back into the fight. Never say never guy on that stuff, too. What I think is so interesting about that, and first of all, I just really appreciate your authenticity and your candor and your humility about this conversation. There's a different rubric that you get to decide on, right? Like, I mean, I think so. I mean, obviously, there's got to be some financial reward, but that's really not the driver. Like, you don't have to – like, that doesn't have to be the driver for you. It can be something completely different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I heard you say was a lot of, like, what it really means to lead teams and to accomplish really amazing things. And so I'm just super optimistic for where things are going for you. And I think you have – I'm really excited to continue on our journey as friends for the next, hopefully, many, many years. Let's see how like. How many 2,000 weeks, do we weeks have? maybe? <laughs> maybe? Hopefully. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not I eating right enough for 2,000 weeks. So well, I'll, I'll give myself 1,500. Well, you know, we just have to hope that the rate of innovation accelerates enough to where we can get, you know, like yeah. the eye liver, <laughs> and the eye heart, or whatever it is. 
But uh, no, I just, I'm really excited for where you're going. And again, thank you so much for all your insights and sharing your experience. It's been just a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. No problem. It was fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Well, I look forward to the next one. Me too. 